Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with a bunch of other co-hosts that uh, come at you straight out of the Bible and out of theology, jumping right off of the pages of Scripture into your earbuds. We hope you're doing well and want to thank you so much for listening. And for those of you who give regularly to OnScript, we really appreciate that. That's been helpful as we grow and develop and also with some upcoming things that we hope to do. Uh, Stay tuned for that in maybe the later part of this year. Yeah, so thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Our guest today is Christopher B. Hayes, who is D. Wilson Moore, Professor of Ancient Near Eastern Studies at Fuller Theological Seminary in California. Among other publications, he's the author of Hidden Riches, a textbook for comparative studies of the Old Testament in the Ancient Near East, and Death in the Iron Age 2 and in First Isaiah, published by Moore Zeebeck. He's also working on an Isaiah commentary for the Old Testament Library series, and today we're going to be talking about his work in Isaiah because he's recently published a book called The Origins of Isaiah 24-27, Josiah's Festival Scroll for the Fall of Assyria. Chris, welcome to OnScript. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Chris, we overlapped for one year um, during our time at Emory. You were finishing, and I was uh, uh, green as can be. PhD student. Um, What are some of your enduring memories of your time at Emory? Oh, gosh. I mean, it it was just a very supportive place to us all. I think as students, uh, we had such great mentors, people like Brent Strawn, David Peterson, you know, Carol Newsom, and then these wonderful senior figures like John Hayes, who are still uh, still so much involved. Um, Just the great... Uh, libraries and um, just the feeling that that anything that that they could do for you, they would. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, I I didn't uh, I didn't get to know John Hayes, but uh, his he he his legacy was larger than life, and apparently he he was larger than life as a person too. So, what um, for people that don't know him, what what do people need to know about John Hayes? Oh, uh, he he was just a legend. He was an Alabama farmer in a way uh he he used to commute uh, two hours across the state border into georgia to te- uh, teach at emory which he would do all the time he would do extra courses for you he was i mean i i didn't have quite the the needs that some people did but i he was a, a kind of you know father figure to many of our fellow students um and and also just a character um I, you know we still you know get together at the sbl meeting and uh, regale each other with all, all the John Hayes sayings, and I, I still pass out moon pies in my historiography uh, seminar because John used to pass out moon pies in his seminars. So, um, just a character. Yeah. yeah. So he was a farm <laughs> farmer in Alabama, and and what did he? What, what kind of farmer was he? Well, that's a good question. He he had cattle, and he also had a lake full of catfish where. Uh, I once had the pleasure of, of catching a couple, which I, I think might have hurt his feelings, though he, he said we could, but I'm, I'm not sure he was really down with it because he loved his animals so much and cared for his cows like children almost. And so he, in fact, that's where he passed away in the field uh, with his cows. And so there's a, um, there's a certain kind of peace in knowing you know, that he died uh, doing something that he loved. So that probably gave him insights into, um, you know, sacrifice ritual and like uh, in in Leviticus and whatnot, right? That that may well be true. John never talked quite as much about that. My my mentor Jim Roberts from Princeton Seminary used to talk a lot about that because he was from Texas and he you know so, so he had this strong Texas accent and he would say, "How does anybody who's never been a farmer understand the Old Testament?" <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's it's funny because um I had I had something where I needed to talk to farmers when I was I was looking at the um the 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 law of the unsolved mur- murder in Deuteronomy and 
And that's where it, it says that uh, most translations have it um, where they, they take the uh, heifer down to a stream and they break its neck. And, and um, it is, is the typical translation. And I, I asked a couple of farmers, I was like, can you just break a cow's neck? And they're like, no, that would, that would take like, you know, you, you would do serious injury to yourself trying to break a cow's neck. Um, so, uh, anyway, because the, the Hebrew word is just you arof it, you, you neck it. Um, so, could be slitting the throat or something, but it helps. It does help to be a farmer. Um, could you tell me about your journey into biblical studies? Um, were, you, were you at all resistant giving your dad's prominence in the field of New Testament studies? Is, or is this like your way of rebelling or what? <laughs> I sometimes joke that we have the canon covered between the two of us. So it's more more of a pot for world domination, I suppose, than it is anything else. But uh, I, I mean, <laughs> I must say that I, I probably get asked that question less these days than I once did. And so I, I, I probably think a little bit less, less about it than I once did. I, I like to think I'm probably known a little bit more for my own work now than when I first came into field. But um, I, I mean, as far as a resistance, I mean... When I was in college, I, I certainly didn't think that I'd be doing this later. I, I only t- took one undergraduate course in in a religion at um, Amherst, where I was. Although I, I did take s- some classical Greek, but at that point, I, I was just really into texts and into literature, especially poetry. So I, I was a double major in French and English, um, and I, I eventually found my way into Bible. Uh, but I, I still think there's probably some potential that I, I sense at times for people to have the wrong expectations of my work based on his. Because uh, although some of his work is interested in um, historical context, like his uh, commentary on First Corinthians, I, I think in general what he's known for is what we might call literary or a canonical or, or theological interpretation. And, and by contrast, as an Old Testament or Hebrew Bible scholar, I see so much uh, potential and so much need for understanding the Old Testament in its own context. And so I, I haven't been as eager to rush off to New Testament or, or uh, canonical theological readings. I, I mean, so I, I can affirm those as methods for Christian interpretation, but I, I just feel like God knows there are, there are plenty of people already doing it. So I, I've gotten fascinated in the world of the Old Testament instead. Yeah. Now, you were, uh, were you a journalist for a little while, too? Is that right? I was, yeah. I mean, out of that college interest in texts and in in language, uh, I tried some other things first. And I I worked as a journalist for five years, worked for a couple of different national newspapers. And um, it was a good experience in some ways, taught me to write faster and probably write cleaner as a copy editor. Uh, But the the daily grind of the news cycle uh, was tough. There's just not enough time for deeper and more polished work, I felt like. And I'm a bit of a perfectionist in some ways, so I decided that I wanted to do something that would would give me more time to work on projects, basically. Um, but so anyway, it's it's increasingly hard in the world that we live in to find spaces to make a living working with texts and and thinking about them. But so, I went back to graduate school at, at Princeton Seminary without a particularly clear idea what might be coming next. I, did, I was trying to keep my mind open when I went there. But uh, yeah, you know, searching for both meaning and and the right match for my skills. And um, so you, you've you've done a lot of work in comparative study of the Bible and looking at the Bible in its ancient Near, Near Eastern context. Um, what are some examples of that you see are ways of doing comparative work um, that are exemplary? And what are some of the pitfalls in doing comparative work? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess to start with some of the most you know, basic ones. When you look back at the history of comparative method, you and you go back, you know, 75 or 100 years, you see these somewhat heated conversations about who the superior culture is, right? You know, is, are the you know were the other any nations, you know, benighted pagan worshippers uh, compared to uh, the authors of the Bible, or or vice versa? Is the Bible just sort of borrowed from? all these surrounding cultures. And I, I think that, that you know, those debates are, are thankfully largely a, a thing of the past. And um, I, I think that w- what we see when we look at the Bible is this sort of uh, really rich intertextual conversation with the context. So that the goal you know, now uh, really is to sort of uh, to appreciate how the Bible makes use uh, of motifs 
of ideas from the surrounding cultures, how it reacts to them, how it remixes them, how it uh, transposes them. That's a word that I've used sometimes in, in my writing. Um, and so, you know, now I think that the best work is just deeply engaged in the literary uh, nuances of, of both the biblical and the ancient Near Eastern texts and, and really has its ears tuned to hear th- those ongoing conversations between the two. And and how did you, um, you know, you've done a lot of work in Isaiah, not only in your your monographs, but also in translation. Um, how did you how did you land in the book of Isaiah as, as a as an academic focus? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I sometimes tell people that I I never had a chance uh, as far as OT because when I got to uh, Princeton Seminary in in two thousand. It was just an amazing time uh, to be there in terms of the kind of Bible faculty that they had. Uh, Patrick Miller, who just passed away this last week, was a huge influence on me. Uh, he was just a, a greatly inspiring teacher, a great speaker, a great uh, uh, theologian and comparativist at, at the same time, just a, a kind of a rare combination. I, so I took four or five courses with him, you know, but also that we had Jack Lapsley, Dennis Olson, Leong um, Seau, Chip Dobbs, also Uni Lee, I mean, all there at the same time. Uh, so I, I just, I, I can't think of any other places now that have that kind of depth, frankly, on, on an Old Testament faculty. But so, but, but uh, I guess back to the main thrust of your question, when it comes to Isaiah and ancient Near Eastern context, which is what I've really gone into, it, it was Jim Roberts, who was the, the huge figure. And I, I came to it late in the spring of my last year of the MDiv. So I, that one spring, I, I took two courses with him, um, Exegesis of First Isaiah and a PhD seminar on ancient Near Eastern context. Um, so uh, and I, I wrote about this, this experience of sitting under him in, in Hidden Riches um, just to be there and, and to suddenly realize how much I didn't know about the world of the Bible even after three years of grad school, it was like kind of scales falling from my eyes. And I, I, I just asked myself how, how I could ever read the Bible well without knowing these things. Um, and so ever since then, I, I've just sort of been impelled to go deeper and, and deeper. I, I wrote a combined final paper for those two courses on death imagery in First Isaiah, and, and Jim gave it an A and, 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 and made some comment like, uh, this could be a, a dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure enough. That's so you a, ran with that's it. What, that's what happened. I took that seriously. Yeah. I did. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. It's it's amazing how those things just keep rolling. Then because you wrote your dissertation on it, then you wrote your your book on it uh, with more Zebek. Um, also reworked for Erdman's, and then uh, the theme of death and afterlife comes up in in this most recent book as well. Um, so. With within the you know thinking about your book, um, the origins of Isaiah twenty four to twenty seven, within maybe you could just help listeners understand how you know within the field of biblical Isaiah studies, why are chapters twenty four to twenty seven so contested, and you know why should we care about these chapters? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's not a sort of historical accident. These are legitimately challenging texts to to understand that they have no historical reference to events or place names or personal names that are that would specify any single period just some very common um, you know n- names of nations Egypt Assyria Moab um, n- nothing that would be uh, sort of nail it down plus they have a lot of mythological language that's both richly evocative and also potentially confusing um, so I mean as you mentioned this this theme of death did, in fact, help to inspire the new book as well. Uh, um, I, so I, I think the main thing that led to it, these chapters being misunderstood is the language in chapters 25 and 26 about the dead rising and God swallowing up death, right? Um, and I, as I say in the book, I think that earlier interpreters were so used to thinking about the resurrection of the dead as a New Testament concept, or at best, one uh, characteristic of the Hellenistic rabbis, that many, many of them saw that and automatically assumed that it must be Hellenistic. And, you know, one of the one, one of the latest texts in the Hebrew Bible. Um, you know, plus then you add the language in chapter uh, 24 about widespread destruction also sounded apocalyptic, and, and so that contributed. But in, in my first book about 
uh, death imagery in, in the ancient Near East and, and Isaiah, I, I had already realized how widespread that imagery of God's raising the dead was going back way into history long before the Bible and the Bronze Age. Um, so, I, And I wasn't able to take that on fully in the first book, so I, I wanted to come back to it and, and do it uh, justice. So, And I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to, want to oversimplify the issues. I spent more than eight years working through the text from every perspective that I could figure out that was relevant uh, just to be sure that I hadn't overlooked something. And I, I really do believe that I've, I've sorted something out here for the field, I hope. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the book was a, a really good demolition job on the the theory that, that Isaiah 24 to 27 are late because they have features, um, like you said, about death in the afterlife or about cosmic destruction and things like that. Um, so, uh, you, you discussed the theory on uh, that Isaiah 24 to 7, 27 is late because it's apocalyptic and call it a zombie theory. Now, I like that, that language. You said, and I'm quoting you here from page 25, it continues to be widely reported even as the brains that motivated it have been removed and devoured. That's a great image. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 what do you mean by that? How, well, how does this theory yeah. live on? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a sort of a, a case study in in the social politics of the field, I guess. So, I mean, as background for for the hearers, an apocalypse is, of course, a a, a, um, a genre from the Hellenistic period. It comes into use around 250 BC. So, it, if Isaiah 24 to uh, 27 were one, then it would almost have to be very late. And so there's a lot of scholarly interest in apocalyptic literature in the late 19th century, and out of that emerged Bernard Doom's theory that Isaiah 24 to uh, 27 was an apocalypse. So, so he dates it in, in his famous, hugely influential commentary to the late, or, or uh, as late as the first century BCE, so in the Roman period. Um, as it turns out, I was able to show in a previous essay on Daniel that the apocalypse genre was made up of a bunch of different A&E themes that were quite ancient, but happened to coalesce in a distinctive way in the Hellenistic period. So it's, it's, a, it's the constellation of those themes and not the themes as such that's relevant for, uh, for dating. So scholars who, who study apocalyptic had been figuring out on their own that Isaiah 24 through 27 wasn't an apocalypse. And, and um, a number of people had... Uh, pointed this out in print for some years, but more to the point, the text has disappeared from recent studies on apocalyptic. Even by the mid-70s, Paul Hansen uh, dropped it from his list of texts uh, between his first major article on the topic and his, his well-known book on apocalyptic. Um, and at about the same time, um, William uh, Miller wrote a Harvard dissertation uh, on these chapters in which he shows that its poetic form is fairly classical. Some of the key mythological references are quite ancient in the Semitic world. So he, he winds up arguing that it's from the sixth century. And, and that idea found some acceptance, though, though mostly passive, especially in the U.S. context. But the book is, is pretty limited in the kind of data that it looks at. Simultaneously, though, in, in continental scholarship, this idea that Isaiah 24 through 27 is third century is still very much entrenched. Um, even into the second decade of the 21st century, German scholars are still citing as, as final and as authoritative this 1933 study by Wilhelm Rudolph, which is a little more than a pamphlet. It's like 65 pages. And again, it just doesn't take on very much data, nor, uh, nor was Rudolph even, even arguing for a Hellenistic date. He's, he's simply arguing it's not authentic to Isaiah, which I agree with. Um, so... Anyway, but to pull back from the details of the scholarship, to the extent that, that anyone today teaches anything about Isaiah 24 to 27, and I, I don't know how, how much focus it does get in, in intro courses, it, it's been treated as this strange Hellenistic insertion in the middle of Isaiah 1 to 39. So I, I presumably lots of people teaching went through comps decades ago and, and, and haven't updated their notes since. You know, lots of um, intro textbooks still propagate uh, this idea just by default. So, meanwhile, all these people who actually study this genre closely are quietly admitting it's not an apocalypse. So that's that's why I joke about the brains having been completely removed, <laughs> but it's still out there wandering yeah, around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, um, so you you sort of uh, help pull the carpet out from under this this uh, this thesis um, in a in a very thorough way, uh, even including discussions of. You know, is this late biblical Hebrew? And you say, uh, you know, it's not. You know, there might be a few f features, but it's not. 
decidedly late in in the kind of Hebrew that we see there. Uh, so, what's the kind of po- what's the positive thesis that you're advancing then in the book? If this is not from the Hellenistic period, somewhere quite late, uh, what's your reworked uh, your rethinking of this section of Isaiah? Yeah, sure. I, I'm basically arguing that it's a form of um, royal propaganda or rhetoric on the part of Josiah. And you know, this ties into the uh, sort of apocalyptic eschatological theme that you've just been talking about as well, because what you find out when you actually look more broadly at ancient Near Eastern literature is that it's fairly common for uh, uh, portrayals of social chaos or national suffering to bring in this sort of widespread destruction imagery, because then the good king can step in and be the one who saves the nation from that kind of destruction. So we're, we're talking primarily here about chapter 24, which has this um, you know, land being laid waste and all, all the people from, from, um, from top to bottom in the society suffering. And, it, and so this is a fairly widespread a tradition. Um, and you know you see, you see you see it of course in other other pre-exilic texts such as Zephaniah and Amos. You see it in you know one of the Kentelet Ajrud inscriptions from about 800 BC, so fairly close in time. And you also see it in in Egyptian and Mesopotamian texts that go back into the late Bronze Age, stuff like the Era Epic and, um, and the prophecy of uh, Neferti. So that you know. I try to make the case that there's no reason that we should suppose that the, these pictures of divine d- disruption of the natural order through earthquake or the darkening of heavenly lights or the failure of water sources and the land's productivity are characteristic of a late period. They're actually used pretty widely. So, you know, you know, my argument is that when, when Josiah steps back in, that we or you know, when the Assyrians withdraw from the land, uh, Josiah's scribes draw on this ancient tradition to show how he's going to be the good king who restores the land. So, um, so you've got King Josiah of Judah, and he's uh, in the kind of early 600s. And during his reign, the Assyrians are on the decline, and uh, that creates a kind of power vacuum because they had been dominating the land of Judah. And that creates the conditions for expansion or you know the the growth of the of the kingdom so you're you're saying that part of these chapters is that he's making this i think you said an overture to the north to reunify or unify with the south to become a larger kingdom is that kind of the idea yeah i mean you know one of the things to keep in mind is that by the time of uh, josiah's reign the north had been long since turned in, into a a Neo-Assyrian province, and and had been ruled even more aggressively by the Assyrians than had Judah, which you know maintained its nominal independence, though under Assyrian rule effectively. Um, so when when the in the end of the seventh century, when the Assyrians are forced to withdraw from the Levant because they're be, being attacked by the Babylonians back much closer to home, and and apparently just I mean we, we don't unfortunately have the the historical records to know exactly when that was. I, I've taken a guess in the book, but. Um, anyway, when when they had to leave, suddenly you know who who's in power? Who, who knows? It's a it, it's suddenly this new game, and Josiah, as one of the few standing kingdoms left by the Assyrians with an actual king, is the guy who who I think. And I you know I'm I'm not alone in this. I'm I'm picking up on a historical stream of of theology or of historiography here. But um, uh, he he steps up and says, hey, you know, c- let me. Reign, you know. Let me rule this new restored uh, kingdom of David. Hmm. Hmm. So, um, w- one of the questions I had when I was reading is is thinking about how this would have worked out on the ground. But okay, so you have these scribes in Judah writing down this um, th- this account or this description of chaos, and then the possibility of restored order. Let's say under Josiah. Um, are they hand delivering something up north? A document? Are they are they performing this orally, or what? What do you imagine taking place? Maybe some of each. Actually, one of the facets about propaganda that you um, 
that you note in the literature on it when you study it is that propaganda that's aimed at foreign countries is also meant to work in the homeland, as it were. So that for, for Judah, I, I mean, I assume, I, I really do think that Josiah actually invited some of the neighboring, uh, you know, I'm not sure whether we can call them kings, but you know, some of the neighboring, you know, governing elites, yeah, who, who were left in the wake of the Assyrian withdrawal to Judah, uh, to, to Jerusalem, uh, to the Temple Mount, uh, to have this feast. And I, I think, because as lots of people have talked about, feasting is a way to show your power. Feasting is a way to celebrate victory. And he's trying to claim this victory of the Assyrian withdrawal for for the God of Israel. He's saying that you know, it's, it's our God who, who's responsible for this. So I, I, and I do believe that there's a, you know, the people who have sensed a kind of liturgical character in Isaiah 24 through 27 have noticed something that's real, that there's, there are at least fragments in there of things that sound like they might've been read at this ceremony that, you know, the, the, the sort of historical, you know, summary of, of how bad things have been, the, the invitation to the feast, the confession in chapter uh, 26 by the northern kingdom that, oh, we, you know, we have not succeeded on our own, that it, this is God's victory. And so they're, they're being summoned to bend the knee to the Lord at, uh, at the Jerusalem temple, I think. Uh, so, and you're right, it's a very imaginative reconstruction, but I, you know, I, it all fits together pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, we're going to take a pause from the uh, the book to do a speed round now. Um, so, quick responses. Um, first thing is, you, you know that endorsements um, help when writing a book. Um, and having the D. Wilson Moore Professor of Ancient Near Eastern Studies at Fuller endorse your book is no small thing. Um, so, But we don't want to pick and choose what you're going to endorse. So, uh, I I'm gonna, we're, we're going to let Google do that. So I use the random word generator on Google. Are you familiar with that? <laughs> um, you, just, you just push a button and it gives you a random word. And the word it came up with was corn. And, and then, <laughs> then I plugged that sucker into Amazon uh, under the search for books. And it came up with this book. And I'm going to ask you to give it a rating. Um, uh, so one to five stars. So the, the title of the book is Making Pure Corn Whiskey. A Professional Guide for Amateur and Micro Distillers by Ian Smiley. How many stars do you give it and why? Oh, uh, well, four, uh, because um, whiskey is good, but not five, because I, I doubt that you could make as good a whiskey at home as you could probably get at a, at a store. So Okay. All right. Uh, that's good. All right. Well, that, <laughs> I, I think Ian will be grateful for that. Um, what's the most... Here's a good question. I don't know if you had this when you interviewed Emery. Um, what's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? Wow. In the last 50 years. Yeah, that, that, that does sound like a John Hayes question. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. It, like, could you state that again? That so the most, the most significant most book significant. in biblical studies in the last 50 years. Wow. That is hard. So... So 50 years puts us at 1972. Man. <laughs> Matt, I'm going to punt on this one. Yeah, I just, that's I, fine. I can't Wait, choose yeah. one. You, you, you I can come back. Have, I should have fun with it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so what, what are you reading these days? So do, do you have, uh, you know, outside the field of biblical studies? Outside the field, yeah. Um, I, I've been reading... Uh, quite a bit of Bill Bryson in the last couple of weeks. Um, so I, I've read both The Body and, uh, which is his sort of, you know, tour de force through how the body works, and also his, the uh, Mother Tongue, I think it's called, uh, which is a brief history of the English language, uh, which is fun. Although I, I think probably the one of the most uh, striking books I've read in, in recent years was was uh, uh, Tara Westover's Educated. That's a powerful story about, about a woman who's, you know, breaking away from a white separatist family and, and ends up doing a, a Cambridge doctorate. So that, you know, that was mm. amazing. Yeah, I've seen that on the New York Times bestseller yeah. list, but haven't yeah. haven't read it yeah. yet. Um, yeah. Would you rather be covered in fur or scales? Scales for sure. I mean, yeah. it's it's a warm climate here, and it wouldn't hurt to have a little bit of, you know, protection against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune at the moment. 
Um, do you think colonizing Mars is a worthy endeavor? Um, you know, if, if, if you were having a, having a beer with Elon Musk, would you would you call him out and be like, you know, I think you're barking up the wrong tree here, or what would you? It's looking better and better uh, under Trump, I would say, you know, to, to try to found something new up there. Though I, I'm afraid it might be his space force that that uh, takes oh. the lead on uh, on colonizing Mars. I, I don't know whether you've seen the trailer yet for Steve Carell's new space force movie, but that one looks pretty pretty fun. Oh, oh yeah. no, I haven't seen it. <laughs> um, now, uh, are you in Pasadena? Are you in that or that area? Right? Yeah, we're yeah we're just up the hill in um, Altadena. Okay, so uh, I did a little googling on um that area so you you've got the nasa owned jet propulsion laboratory uh this managed by by caltech have you been there oh yeah i they have a, a open to the public day each year and it's 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 hard to get into but great for the kids so we've been once or twice to that okay and they, they that's where um voyager one and two were were developed and the mars there. rover yeah oh and the mars rover oh yeah okay um and uh i, I also looked up into the mountains, I saw Hermit Falls. Have you been there? Hermit Falls? No. Other, uh, you know, okay. every canyon here has a has a waterfall somewhere in it. So, there, like, there so are maybe a bunch you of have. Just hikes didn't, up here. didn't know the name. Uh, Possibly. So, yeah, have have a look on Google Maps. It looked it looked <laughs> it looked gorgeous. Um, Thank you. And what's your forest fire situation right now? How's well, it looking? For a, this? Yeah, um, it, it's hard to tell. We had a pretty good spring for rain, although. Uh, a drier winter, and sometimes though more growth, if the summer is hot and dry, then means higher fire risk. So, um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, many of these wildfires end up being traced to human um, arson. You know, people set these fires. So, I mean, it, it's not even necessarily in the hands of God. Uh, to so, um, yeah. No, I haven't heard anything about you know, fire risk at the moment, it's, it's still pretty springy here. It's still, you know, we're, it's only about two weeks since the rain stopped. Ah, uh, gotcha. What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? <laughs> you, you told me that that might be coming. And I, I mean, of course, I, I guess that the first easiest answer is the idea that, that Isaiah 24 to 27 is an apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or that okay. It's Hellenistic. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Um, do you have a second? Um, I mean, I I have a real fascination with the uh, debates over the date of P, and I'm I'm not a full-time source critic, nor nor am I a particular expert in in priestly literature. But I, I think it's such an important topic, and you've got this this Hebrew Israeli school that has has taken a strong stance for the pre-exilic date of P, and I'm I'm really intrigued by that. Um, so I I'd like, and I I think that we need, uh, you, you know, uh, here's a Here's a briefer way to express what needs to die. We need to, to kill the idea that uh, priestly thinking or uh, Deuteronomistic thinking are forms of thought which existed at a certain moment in, in, in history, and we need to embrace the fact that they are ongoing schools of thought which had, you know, had adherence in different forms at different times. And so we need to sort of complexify our, our view of the formation of, of those bodies of literature. Right, because traditionally, you know, um, at least in the stereotyped form, priestly stuff is late and post-exilic, and so it, it kind of landed on Earth at that moment, and, you know, people just started speaking that way. Um, okay, what's the wackiest email you've gotten as a, as a you know, as a professor uh, of, of Bible in ancient Near East? I'm sure you get uh, emails about, you know, at getting your... In, you know, wanting them to read you to read their book or opinions on things. Do you have any? Oh man, everybody wants to help the theology faculty to fix their theology. Uh, it's true that we get these month after month. Um, I, I mean, I, I did just get in, in a slightly more serious vein a, a, a invitation to contribute to a handbook on monsters. Oh, <laughs> hey, which I think I might do. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. Uh, so. Um, What's your uh, advice for people considering doctoral studies in the Bible, if you had to give um, uh, advice to people entering the field? Yeah, I mean, that's not a, a speed round kind of question at the moment. I mean, I, for for years, I've told students who are good at this that I, I love my job and that uh, it beats other jobs and um, that anyone who 
you know, who can't think of something that they would rather do would, you know, would be well served to go into it if they have the, the gifts for it. Um, you know, when I look around right now in particular, not just, I mean, of course, you know, like the COVID and the pandemic crisis are, um, are making things even worse than usual in, in higher ed. But, you know, this has been coming for some years in, in various ways. There's, a, I think there's a kind of a devaluing of, um, of higher ed and, and there's a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, devaluing of, of faculty work itself. And of course we had, you know, we talk a lot about the adjunctification and the casualization of, of academic labor. And so it's, uh, you know, from the standpoint of work, it's, it's becoming a tougher and tougher case. I mean, um, so many people that I know who are good are, are still, you know, teaching in part-time jobs as adjuncts. And, um, so I, you know what, so what I actually tell people now is that there are lots of signposts along the way. So if you can, if you continue to get signs that you're one of those few people who are, are going to get jobs, then great, like go do it. Um, and there are certainly people who the field needs and, and will need in the future. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I think I've become a little bit more cautious because I think, uh, it's just, it's a tough road. I mean, it's, it's always been a tough road, and it's becoming a tough and more uncertain road. Sure. Um, uh, last speed round question. Um, what's the best book in ancient Near Eastern studies in recent years? <laughs> oh, man. You know, I'm, I don't... I mean, I'll say this. That, You're afraid um, of leaving people out. Well, I, I kind of am. I mean, I'm the kind of person who I, I've, I've learned so much from so many people. I, I think that... Um, you know, someone who I, you know, my students would tell you that they, they hear a lot about from me is, is Mark Smith. I, I think he's an amazing leader uh, in the field. Um, you know, certainly just one of many, but uh, he, I learned so much from him. And, I, and so, you know, some of his books would certainly be on that list. Yeah, definitely a fan. And he's a walking bibliography Oh, I know. That's one of the things about his work is that if you want to know what's been said, just read his footnotes and it's all I in know. there, right? <laughs> I've never met anyone so able to yeah. rattle off sources. Okay. I want to talk about Rama Rachel. We're getting back to your book here. Uh, so for our listeners, you got to get guttural with this one, Rama Rachel. And um, it, it, why – explain what this site is. It's, a, it's an archaeological site. Um, a lot of people won't have heard of it, but it features in your book. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's on a hill that is ju just across a valley and a ridge uh, from the Temple Mount in uh, Jerusalem. You, uh, it's it's hard to see, which I think is part of the point. But I'll, I can come back to that. Uh, but it's it's actually a, a higher hill than the Temple Mount itself, or or Mount Zion, or or, or any of the other hills of of the main city of Jerusalem. So it, it, it's a great uh, lookout site. And so it's it's one that was first built up, you know, prior to the Assyrians uh, by the Judahites as a sort of outpost and a and a lookout. But it becomes significant for my book because this this city motif runs through the whole thing. So in twenty five two, you know, we read, "You Lord have made the city a heap, the fortress town a ruin, uh, the palace of foreigners is a city no more; it will never be rebuilt." Or in uh, 26 5 it's it's called the lofty city that's laid low so i i'm arguing that uh, that we can connect that and it, when the assyrians took it over it was built up into a very deluxe place architecturally um so it has you know fancier you know plates and fancier columns and it's it's really quite a, quite an impressive piece of work and landscaping they they you know flattened part of the hill uh, to to make a grounds for the palace and i mean so as this luxurious place and as the seat of foreign governance and and um oversight in judah it, um it's been argued that that this would have become a symbol of the assyrians rule and a place where the natives would look up to and curse um so, you know so again it, in Josiah's time, uh, when the Assyrians there suddenly disappeared in the 620s or the 610s, um, you know, they, the Judahites seem to have celebrated. And, and they contrast their own city with Ramat Rachel in, uh, in 26.1, which says, we, we have a strong city, right? Not, not a fallen city. So, yeah, that's the main reason why it comes up in the book. 
Yeah, so th- this would have been, um, you know, it's it's the way that uh, one of the ways that Assyria was breathing down the neck of the Judeans for a long time and probably disseminating Assyrian propaganda through there. So its downfall, you know, for it not to be remarked on uh, would it would have been... And the taxes uh, would, yeah. would have flowed through there also, you know, which was right. the, you know, the real pressure on the society. Yeah, there's evidence of that. Do you want to just explain how we know that taxes flowed through there? Well, so, it, you know, this is one of the more, more difficult archaeological points of the book. So I, I won't say too much about it, but it, you have this system of stamp seals that are, where jars uh, were clearly processed through certain hub cities all over the country. And, and you know, the major ones shifted from time to time. And Ramat um, Rachel is, is for a time, one of those major cities. And so lots of these stamp seals are, are found there. Now, the problem is the seals don't say for the Assyrians or for the king of Judah. So there's a whole uh, debate about wh- why the styles of seals shifted at certain points and who who was actually claiming those. And one of the most important common ones is is a a rosette seal, you know, which is unfortunately used by every A and E civilization. For, uh, and so it, it's not terribly helpful. And and so it's uh, it's an appendix in the book, but that's that's how we know. Yeah, and um, and I guess too, if they're sending goods to Ramat Rachel, which is just a few miles from Jerusalem. The question is, why are they sending them there instead of to Jerusalem, right? Well, I mean, and, yeah, and and I mean, as, as has also been pointed out, I mean, wh- why would the kings of uh, Judah build this luxurious palace right on the back doorstep, essentially, of Jerusalem? There, there are no other any examples of kings who, you know, who built themselves summer palaces so close to home. So it, it's probably somebody else. Yeah, and you, did you dig there? I did not so much. Oh, okay, um, I, I, I thought I thought you. I, you know, I have, I have this sort of memory in my mind of you, your profile picture, the famous yeah, one. Well, um, well I, so I, I've been a few times, and I had the honor of being shown around the site by Yuval Godot, who was one of the uh, leaders um, of the team there. And I've I've had a fair amount of dialogue with, with Oded Lipschitz, who was in charge. Of the dig. And in fact, my wife, Carly Crouch, dug there. Yeah. So, yeah. So okay. I, oh, did she? I have various oh. connections to it. Yeah. But okay. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. So, in and then it was a Persian. It was a Persian administrative center as well, wasn't it? Or, yeah, I mean, or so uh, it's theorized. Yeah. Yeah, I, I argue that it's it's essentially passed from one empire to the next as the imperial site of governance. So that you know, I, I think the Babylonians also ruled there, which is why it's not not defeated and and burned in, in 586. I mean, it's it's never you know through through all these shifts of power, it, it there are you know, there's not much sign of uh, destruction layers there. So. Um, so I have a I have a broader question about um, editing of Isaiah. So for a lot of our listeners, the very concept of editing and redacting of books is is maybe challenging or troubling because it, it might feel like it undermines a claim that these texts are scripture or that they are what they say they are. What's your what's your response to people who um, a find re- the the idea of redaction of the Bible editing later later editing troubling, um, or B see that as somehow messing with God's word. Yeah, it, it is the kind of thing that I will sometimes hear students struggle with, although it's often a hard uh, hard thing for them to put into words. So it's it's a fair question. I, I mean, I, I sometimes wonder too, though, where in Scripture it says that our scriptures were not redacted, and if 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 it doesn't say that, then why why are we worried about it? I mean, in in Jeremiah thirty six thirty two, it says that um, Baruch rewrote the scroll of, of Jeremiah, and that quote quote um, many similar words were were added to them, which sa- sounds like redaction somewhat. Uh, Proverbs says that that Hezekiah was adding more proverbs into the book uh, centuries after Solomon's time, and I mean s- some psalms may come from David, but others definitely refer to the end of his dynasty. So it, it seems to me that the Bible isn't actually terribly concerned about redaction as, as a problem. Um, but when a scribe puts a, a superscription on a book for the sake of a title, and modern readers then get up in arms about every word being dictated by a single person, and I, I just I, I think that we have to be a, a little bit self-critical about the assumptions of of modern times that go into that. Um, so, I mean, I, 
as I always tell my students, I don't think that we're called as readers to pretend that our scriptures are not human. Uh, I tell them that uh, Jesus was both fully human and fully uh, divine, and the same goes for the Bible. So the Bible was composed by the same kinds of complex processes as any other ancient text. But but people aren't comfortable with that kind of fully human Bible. Yeah. Uh, now, um, similarly, I guess w- when it comes to prophecy, um, it, obviously Isaiah has a massive uh, place in the Christian tradition, and uh, for a lot of Christians, they want to read uh, Isaiah as predicting things about the life of Christ. And then along come biblical scholars, a lot of whom want to just disabuse Christians of the idea that this speaks about Christ and say, no, it's just talking about the Assyrian period. So, is, do you have a, a way of kind of speaking into both of those things? Because uh, obviously you're, you're concerned uh, with uh, setting Isaiah in its ancient context, but then as a Christian reading it in relation to Christ. So, what, what's your way of navigating the both end there? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I can talk some about the reasons why it certainly seems to scholars uh, that the book of Isaiah is composed over a long period of time. At, at, the, at a theological level, um, I think what I would say to students if, if they were to ask about that would, would be to say that if, if we want to treat the Bible as the Word of God, and if God is the author, then by the power of the Spirit, um, the text takes on uh, different meanings at different times. And so I, I don't think that we have to choose between um, was it you know, written in the 8th century uh, entirely as the Word of God, or is it a, a redactional product of a later period and therefore not God's Word? I, I think that what you actually see is that um, in, in so many ways that God continues to speak uh, through texts written for other time periods to to new time periods, and, and that's what any preacher does when they take up the Bible to preach, is that they you know, they look at, it, at an ancient word and they find new things in it. So the one difference is that our, our modern sermons are not you know, canonical in, in the way that the Bible is, but that process of reinterpretation and finding new things in the Word of God is, is one that goes back um, all the way. So um, I wouldn't, you know, I, I think that it's a very powerful realization that you have this uh, fully divine, fully human Bible, because once you're able to embrace the full humanity of the Bible as a scholar, no matter how, how you know, theologically orthodox you may style yourself, you're completely free at that point to, to study the Bible from the standpoint of history. Uh, and so you're, then you're in the conversation with scholars. Whereas when, um, if you're always having to bend scholarly findings to suit a certain kind of uh, you know, compositional model, then you're, you're not really going to be in, in the conversation even. One of the things I really liked uh, about your book was your conclusion. You know, a lot, a lot of um, scholars will just rehash the argument of the book and summarize it, maybe draw a few points together, but you chose uh, a different route, which was to tell a story, an imaginative story, but a story that uh, is plausible given the findings of the study. And I thought that was a really great approach. And I wanted to just read a paragraph that I really enjoyed to give readers a flavor for um, what you do in your conclusion. It was very unusual and not the kind of thing you'd normally find in a, a scholarly book um, about uh, the, you know, about the book of Isaiah. So you have, you have this, I'm jumping into the middle here on page 262, where you've got Josiah holding a victory feast after the Assyrians have withdrawn, and he's he's called the scribes together, and he's he says to them, "I want you to write something to commemorate this occasion, and also to to describe it in the the kinds of terms that we talked about, you know, apoc- not apocalyptic but cosmic terms." Um, okay, so then he says, "There's one more thing," he says to them, "I want the northerners invited. That's to the feast." Now the scribe's calm veneer cracks. Shaphan, as one of the more senior among them, steps forward gingerly. He explains in the most submissive possible way that that's not a good idea. The northerners have never accepted Judah's legitimacy as the true Israel, and it's hardly likely that they're going to come bow to Yahweh. Those people are not even the sons of Jacob anymore. Not really. They were shipped in there by Assyria a century ago from God knows where. They wouldn't know Bethel from Sheol. 
Josiah smiles thinly at these objections. He nods to his senior advisor, who firmly escorts the scribes out. Um, I thought that was really well written, first of all. Um, What gave you the idea to do it this way? Yeah, thank you. Um, It was kind of inspired by a piece that Carol Vandertorn wrote called Nine Months Among the Peasants in the Palestinian Highlands, which is, you know, it's set in the 10th century or, or even earlier he's trying to tell the story about the the sort of sort of origins of um of um, israelite religion and uh he and so he does it in the same sort of narrativized way he's just telling a story about it uh and i i assign this all the way down to my my intro course because i i just think it's a powerful teaching tool and it it's imaginative but in in the case of vandertorn's article it's also Every word, every sentence seems so clearly grounded in in what scholars are talking about about the period and about Israelite religion. That I have, you know, I sort of think it's a it's a great tool for those who may not want to wade through a four hundred page Israelite religion textbook, right? Um, so, my, you know, my hope here is that for people who have been struggling, perhaps in the book, to uh, to pull together all the different threads that, that each of the different chapters covers methodologically that, that they can sort of see in my own mind how that all comes together in this story and, and how I actually think that these chapters uh, might have taken shape. So, yeah, I'm glad it worked for you. Yeah, it really did. And have you ever thought about expanding that kind of thing out into a uh, a book, uh, you know, a historical fiction? <laughs> it's funny you should mention that. I, I have thought about this in the past. That there are a few, um, you know, novels in that genre out there that are based in ancient Near Eastern times or, or, or culture, or, or that are sort of mid-Rashim sometimes on the biblical text. Um, it would be fun to do at some point. I, I think, I suppose, what's what I would need to do that would be a sort of a a, a main purpose or a main story that I. I wanted to tell that it would somehow differ from from what's available now. That's always been one of my goals in in writing is to not write books that don't need to be written. (laughs) (laughs) I got to keep that up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript today. Really appreciate um, what you're doing and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here and to talk with you. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.